0: Let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter three. Uh, If I was assigned something to speak on this evening, either I never got it or forgot it or purposely neglected it, because this is what I want to teach on tonight. I want to teach on the lineage of our deliverer from Genesis to Jesus. What I want to give is a bird's eye view of God's plan starting at the beginning when the fall happened and the curse was pronounced upon Adam and Eve. Now remember, in the Garden of Eden, chronologically, Eve sinned before Adam, but Adam was always held responsible for the fall. The Bible never holds Eve responsible. Paul pointing out later in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He sinned with eyes wide open. And then God pronounced a curse. First upon the serpent who had deceived them, then upon Eve, then upon Adam. Adam. And part of the curse that came upon the serpent is found for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says this And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What the Lord God announced right there to Satan, of course, Adam and Eve heard it. I believe that every angel in heaven, every demon in hell was listening to this as well. What God said is he said, Satan, you're going to be destroyed. I'm going to put enmity, strife between you and the woman, between you and humanity, and between your seed, your descendants, your team, so to speak, and her seed. And by the way, that's in the singular, a singular seed. He shall bruise your head. In other words, her seed, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head. That's a death wound. And you shall bruise his heel, a relatively minor wound. You're going to hurt the seed of the woman, but he's going to destroy you. Right there, God told Satan, in the hearing of Adam and Eve, in the hearing, as I said before, of every angel in heaven and every demon in hell, you're going down. There will come someone to destroy you, there will come someone to deliver humanity. There's going to come a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ. Satan, you're going down, and it's the seed of the woman that's going to do it. Now, You all are a biblically literate bunch. You're well taught. I read this, and who do you immediately think of? Jesus, and you should. For us, it's so obvious. We look back. Who was the destroyer of Satan? Who disarmed every principality and power? Who's the deliverer of humanity? Who's the savior of the world? Who's the Messiah sent from God? It's Jesus. He is the seed of the woman who destroyed Satan, who delivered humanity. I I mean, the New Testament's so specific about it. We look back and, yes, of course, how wonderful it is. Praise the Lord for that. And it is something to praise the Lord for. But if I could ask you just for a moment, if you could put yourself in the fig leaves of Adam and Eve, I was going to say sandals, but I don't think, they, they had fig leaves at least. If you could put yourself in the fig leaves of Adam and Eve, see this from their perspective. If you were to ask, if you were to interview Adam and Eve after this, what, what just happened there, Adam, what just happened to Eve? Well, I don't know. Of course, they'd say a lot more because a lot more happened to this. But just relevant to verse 15, they'd say, I, I don't know, but this is what God promised. God promised that Satan's going down, that, that there's going to come someone to destroy him. There's going to come someone to deliver humanity. And then say, well, what, what do you know about this person who's going to do this? They say, I don't know. The only thing we know is it's going to be the seed of the woman. It's going to be a descendant from... Now, it was pretty easy to figure out who the woman was. There was one on the earth. Adam would point over at Eve and say, that deliverer is going to come from her. It's going to be the seed of the woman. Well, what's his name? I don't know. When's he going to come? I don't know. What's his character? What's his nature going to be? I don't know. All I know is this. The seed of the woman is going to destroy Satan. He's going to crush his head. And he'll be the deliverer that we've looked for. Now, if you see that from Adam and Eve's perspective, see it also, just for a moment, and I hope what I'm doing here isn't dangerous, but if you can, look at it for a moment from Satan's perspective. Satan's looking at this, going, what do I know about my destroyer? This is what I know It's coming from the seed of the woman. It's going to be her descendant that is my destroyer. And would you blame Satan for thinking like this? Is there anything I can do to stop the seed of the woman from destroying me? Again, you and I, we look at it from such a wonderful, if I could use the term enlightened, New Testament perspective. You and I, we look at this and we go, pfft. How stupid could Satan be to think that he could win anything against God? Hello, Satan, don't you know you lose in the end? Your, our, our advice to Satan was just to just give up. Tap out, Satan. You're going to lose. But if there's anything we know about the devil, and we know this because Jesus himself said it, Jesus said that he is the father of lies, that it's in his nature to lie. And there's something that's pretty often true, I'm not going to say it's always true, but it's pretty often true about liars, it is the, the worst liars lie also to themselves. And friends, I, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but I, I would just say, I would not be surprised if Satan has told himself that he has a chance to win this thing. That at least at this moment, Satan said, I'm, I, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting, and maybe I got a chance. And I know the key to victory or defeat is the seed of the woman. So what happens? We'll look now at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Whoa, what do you know? Someone is born from the seed of the woman. But by the way, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it speaks about him in the he sense. I should have added that. One thing you would know about this deliverer, this destroyer of Satan, this deliverer of humanity, is it's going to be a man. I mean, obviously, the woman has her role in this. She's the one who has to bring forth the deliverer. So the woman brings forth the deliverer, but the deliverer himself is going to be a man. And what does Eve do? Genesis 4.1, she gives birth to a son. And what's her reaction? What does she say? I have acquired a man from the Lord. Friends, this could be accurately translated, I have gotten the man from the Lord. Could you blame Eve for thinking that that son that she gave birth to would be the Messiah, the Deliverer? This is it. This is the Deliverer. Lord, you said it would be my seed that would destroy Satan, that would be humanity's deliverer. I had a baby. It's a boy. Thank you, Lord. Now, and maybe I should say that this... This Bible study is a little more speculative than I would normally be when I teach the Bible, but you can take it for what it's worth. Would you blame Satan for also thinking, that's the guy? That's the guy. That could be my destroyer. Friends, how did Cain end up? Satan, in the form of sin crouching at the door, got Cain to disqualify himself from being that deliverer. Because I want you to follow this logic here. Satan knew that this deliverer would have to be sinless and pure. Now, it doesn't say that. In Genesis 3.15, I know it doesn't say that, but but just follow the logic through. Why couldn't Adam be the destroyer of Satan? Why couldn't Adam be the deliverer? Why couldn't that happen? Well, because Adam disqualified himself with his sin. Satan could put two and two together and say, listen, whoever this seed of the woman is, whoever my destroyer, humanity's deliverer is, it's going to have to be somebody who's sinless and pure because I got Adam disqualified from it by leading him into sin. It it takes more than just anyone to conquer Satan. And if you have the spot of sin upon you, you're, you're unfit to deliver the death blow to Satan. And maybe, just maybe, Satan understood this himself because he was once a holy being who fell. And perhaps he innately knew that it would take a holy being to defeat him. Therefore, Satan's strategy against Cain was pretty clear. I will disqualify him. And perhaps Satan didn't know for certain that Cain was the one. As I said to you before, Eve seemed to think so. She says, I've gotten the man from the Lord. This is the one. Maybe Satan didn't know for sure, but he wasn't going to take any chances. And so he invested a lot of energy into leading Cain into sin. And instead of being humanity's deliverer, Cain had the dubious distinction of being the first murderer. Of course, disqualified. One potential deliverer in the lineage of Eve was now eliminated. Disqualified. Can you imagine just for a moment how something died in the heart of Eve when that happened? What happens next? Well, as the flow of redemptive history goes on, Adam and Eve have many children. We're not told how many, but they had a lot of children. Sons, daughters, they had a lot of them. And Satan couldn't single out any particular one. And men began to multiply across the face of the earth. You know, in those days, the Bible indicates that people had unusually long lifespans. It seems like ecological conditions on the earth were just prime for, for uh, humanity to flourish. And, and in a very few number of generations, at least from our reckoning, the, the earth became quite populated. Now, I'm not saying it was up to our modern population levels, but relatively soon, there was a lot of people on the earth. And, and Satan had, if anything, singled out. He just knew it's going to be one of these people who would be. My destroyer and humanity's deliverer. So what did he do? Well, since Satan could not know the identity of his potential destroyer, because it could have been anybody on planet Earth, Satan therefore had a very broad strategy against humanity. Again, all in the attempt to disqualify a deliverer. And what did he do? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. By the way, that, that's not referring to a lifespan of 120 years. That means it's going to be 120 years from the time the Lord said that to the flood that was about to come. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. Friends, that's quite a statement, isn't it? May I repeat that again? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah. Noah. Walked with God. Now, friends, you can find many different opinions on this passage. The the, the dominant interpretation through church history, having to do with this passage, is that this is the marrying of believers with unbelievers. The, The faithful line of Seth with the descendants of the line of Cain intermarrying And that's why God was so displeased, and that's why God, that's been the majority opinion throughout church history. I have to say, I disagree with that. I think that there was something far more sinister, something far more profound going here, and I think it has to do with Satan's broad attempt to disqualify a deliverer. This is what I mean by that. I believe that this was a very deliberate attempt of Satan to corrupt the human gene pool and to disqualify the human race from being able to produce the deliverer who would conquer him. And he did this through some strange, I don't pretend for a moment to have it all figured out. I think that my understanding of this has questions of itself. It's not like some airtight with everything answered, but I think it's the best explanation. There was some type of demonic corruption of the human gene pool. So much so, number one, that when God chose a man to deliver from it, he looked for a man who was, notice the phrase, perfect in his generations. What does that mean? Well, I will say this. That if you were to put that in modern terminology, you might translate that something like this. He was pure in his genetics. Noah was uncorrupted by whatever genetic pollution Satan was trying to sow. That's one aspect. Here's the other thing that helps it make sense for me. Is Let's face it. Whatever the problem was here, it needed a radical remedy. Judging every inhabitant on planet Earth with death except for eight people, that's a radical judgment. I don't think that the marrying of believers and unbelievers merits such a radical judgment. But the genetic corruption of the human race, so profound that it would, in a sense, prevent humanity from having a pure descendant who could be the deliverer, be the destroyer, be the Messiah, the seed of the woman prophesied. That makes a lot of sense to me. Matter of fact, Jude verses 6 and 7 tells us that God took this option away from Satan. God knew that if Satan were able to do this again in another 10 or 15 generations, humanity could be corrupted all over again. So look at this, Jude verses six and seven. He said, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. At Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. To, to boil that down very quickly, God basically said to Satan, I'm not going to let you do that anymore. Those demonic spirits that, that could work in that way, whatever it was exactly, and I'm gonna confess, I don't really know, but however they could sow this demonic corruption of the human gene pool, God said, no more, I'm taking that off the table. They're imprisoned, they're off the table, so to speak. So we see it at work. We see God's strategy and Satan's counter strategy. Satan tried to prevent the conqueror from coming and and by corrupting the human race so that it could not bring forth the Messiah, but God knew what to do and he wouldn't allow it. Now what about after the flood? After the flood, Satan again knew nothing about his future conqueror, nothing. Nothing. It's just going to be one of those, it's going to come from one of those eight people on the ark. That's all he knew. But then the population of the earth begins to rapidly grow again. And nothing's really narrowed down for Satan. It's just worldwide until Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abram. Now, Abram or Abraham is identified as someone in the lineage of the Deliverer. When word of that got back to Satan, he said, I know what that means. All the families of the earth being blessed means that the seed of the woman is now going through this man, Abram. It means that my destroyer, humanity's deliverer, it's gonna come through Abram's lineage. And what does Satan do immediately? He focuses an attack against Abram. Abram has to go down to Egypt and his wife, Sarai, is almost taken into the harem of Pharaoh, but God miraculously prevents it. And then in Genesis chapter 20, Sarah is almost taken by Abimelech, showing another attack. At least twice, if not more, Satan tries to disrupt this family of Abraham and Sarah through which the seed of the woman is going to come. You can almost picture Satan working on the problem through a blackboard in his headquarters. He writes the names of specifically mentioned people, big circle around Abram and Sarah. It's going to be through them. How can we get at them? And he focuses his attack against them, but he can't do it, not successfully, because God is protecting things every step of the way. So how many kids does Abram have? Well, that's a trick question, really, Uh, because he had one son who was not of the promise. And then, believe it or not, after uh, Sarah died, Abraham actually married again and had more kids. But the one son that he had through Sarah, the important one, so to speak, that was Isaac. So what did Satan know? It's going to be through him. It's going to be through Isaac. He's the guy. And what happens with Isaac? In Genesis chapter 26, his wife, Rebekah, is almost taken by a Philistine king. It shows that Satan's using the same strategy against Isaac and Rebekah that he used against Abraham and Sarah. And God defended To to use some terminology, he defended the womb that was reserved for a special purpose. It's going to be through Rebecca that that seed of the woman comes. And I want you to know, Satan didn't know. Satan could have thought that it would be the next child she has might be the deliverer. It might be generations down the line, but he just knew it's going through Isaac and Rebecca. So what happens with them? Well, then they have two sons. Esau, the older one, and Jacob. And through a lot of family drama, God makes it clear that it's going to be Jacob, the younger, who receives the birthright. That line of the seed of the woman is going to pass through him. And so how many sons does Jacob have? Twelve. Now instantly it's more complicated for Satan, isn't it? Where before he had one name that he could circle on the blackboard. Okay, no, I know it's going to be Abram. No, 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 now I know it's going to be Isaac. Well, no, 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 now I know it's going to be Jacob. Well, now, which one of the 12 will it be? Until God said this in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Right then and there, Satan knew it's going to be Judah. It's going to come through him. So should you expect some strange goings-on with Judah then? You absolutely should. What happens with Judah? Well, Judah um, has this weird thing with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. This weird thing where she's posing as a prostitute and he picks her up as a prostitute, and this it, it's a strange, bizarre situation that just showed the weirdness in this family, but it also shows this that even though Satan probably thought he won a victory in disqualifying this, God said, No, I'm gonna redeem it. That that woman Tamar, no, she's not to blame. She's gonna be in the lineage of the deliverer. And God picked out some very special women in their shining place to be part of that lineage of the Deliverer because God promised that the scepter would not depart. It would be fulfilled in this descendant from Judah. Satan could circle Judah on his blackboard. Then the problem was, of course, over the centuries, Judah had a lot of kids. Over the 400 years that they lived in Egypt. A lot of descendants. Which one is it? Satan doesn't know. Until God makes a special promise to a man named David. As the generations went on, there were thousands of descendants of Judah. Satan couldn't know which one of them it would be until much later. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5. Excuse me, we're going to start at verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7 where God says this to David, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the weird way my mind works, I I picture God speaking those words through the prophet Nathan to David and and this flashing red light going off in Satan's headquarters. We've identified it. Here it is. We know where the seed of the woman, where the destroyer of Satan, where the deliverer of humanity, we know where the line of his lineage passes through. It's going to be through David. This made David a particular target of Satan. The devil didn't like him before, but now he's a special target. By the way, the whole Bathsheba incident happened after God made this promise to David. You can see Satan is trying to derail what God has promised, trying to ruin and disqualify David and his descendants. So what happens after David? Well, David had a notable son named Solomon. I mean, back in Second Samuel 7, the promise was narrowed down to David, that descendant of Judah, and you can see how the steps go. It goes from Abram, well, if you want to go back, from Adam to Noah to Abram to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, now focused again on David. Here's the specific individuals. Then David has seven sons, 11 sons to my count. Which one do you focus on then? I think Satan was very clever. Satan said, look, this is a royal thing that God's going to do through this seed of the woman. This deliverer is going to be a a Messiah, a king, an anointed one. All that had been made clear by this time. He goes, I got to focus on the guys who become king. So which son of David became king after him? Solomon. Did Satan focus an attack against Solomon? I think he did a pretty good one. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, was led into idolatry and apostasy through his 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, Isn't it incredible how stupid a wise man can be? Now, if, Satan did a good job against Solomon. You could say he did an even better job against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, because Rehoboam split the kingdom of Israel into two, a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Well, Rehoboam didn't do it directly, but his foolish policies led to the civil war. And so it continued. The descendants of David reigned in Jerusalem. The line of David, the the, the kingdom of Israel up in the north had several dynasties, all of them wicked, all of them losers. But, But the kingdom in Jerusalem of the lineage of David, that's where the seed of the woman was now passing through. That's the line of the lineage, if I could use that phrase. Those attacks continued against the royal descendants of David all the way down to a king named Jehoiakim. Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 30 and 31 tell us about God's curse on Jehoiakim. Now, friends, how bad do you got to be to be a royal descendant of David and God says, I'm going to curse you? That's how bad Jehoiakim was. Look at this curse, Jeremiah chapter 36, starting at verse 30. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I pronounced against them but they did not heed. Jehoiakim, you are now disqualified from having your descendants sit on the throne of Israel, of Judah. Now friends, isn't it interesting? We know that Satan himself cannot defeat God's plan. Satan wins his victories against God's plan by getting human beings to stand in the way of God's plan or to bring a curse of God upon themselves. That's exactly how it worked with Balaam. Now, you know, when you talk about Balaam in the book of Numbers, everybody thinks of the talking donkey and that's almost the least interesting part of the story. Balaam was hired by a pagan king to curse the people of Israel. And so he came and he prophesied over the people of Israel. But when he prophesied, because he was, at least in that instance, actually speaking as God's vessel, all he could do was bless the people of Israel and not curse them. And that made the king who hired uh, Balaam very mad. I paid you good money to curse Israel. And every time you speak all you do is bless them. But this is what Balaam said to the king. He said, king, I can't curse these people. God has chosen to bless them. But I'll tell you how to get them cursed. Send your good-looking women down into the camp of Israel and have them seduce the men of Israel and say, hey, let's go off into my tent and we can worship my God and then roll in the hay, so to speak. And it worked. Leading Israel into immorality and idolatry. And God brought a plague upon Israel. You see how that works? Balaam couldn't curse them, but he could figure out how to lead them into sin and in some way disqualify them, in some way bring God's anger, God's correction upon them, whatever it was. God, excuse me, Satan could not defeat God's plan for Israel, but he could get Israel to defeat that plan for themselves, or at least apparently so. And Satan used that principle against Jehoiakim and the royal line of David. Now if you think again about that verse, Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 30, Think again about the the chalkboard in Satan's headquarters. He's got Jehoiakim circled. He's attacking, leading him in all kinds of depravity. And let me tell you, some of those kings of Judah were so led into depravity, they were practicing human sacrifice, some of them, in honor of the pagan gods around them. Finally, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, Jehoiakim, nobody from you is going to sit on the throne of David. When Satan hears that, the, the, the celebration bells go up. We think we've stopped it. <laughs> because if, the, if the, the seed of the woman goes through the line of Jehoiakim, but he's disqualified himself and his blood descendants after him from sitting on the throne, then it's kind of this, this conundrum that, that can't be solved. See, here's the problem if someone was a blood descendant of David through Jehoiakim, he couldn't sit on the throne of Israel and be the king because of the curse that was pronounced in Jeremiah chapter 36. But if the promised deliverer, the seed of the woman, was not descended through David, then he could not be the legal heir of the throne because the promise made to David and the nature of the royal law. So what did God do? I hope nobody thinks for a moment that God was worried about this problem. Can you imagine? It's it's vain to imagine. But God pacing back and forth in the throne. Oh, what am I going to do about this? And of course, God never would do that. Never. God had this all figured out from the very beginning. You know what God did? Was he split the lineage of the deliverer. Brilliantly so. He never announced it. It comes evident later. That's why in Matthew and in Luke, there are different genealogies for Jesus. Has that ever sort of thrown you for a loop? Whoa, wait a minute. Matthew gives a genealogy. Luke gives a genealogy. How come they're not exactly the same? Here's the thing. Matthew recorded the genealogy of Joseph. He began at Abraham and followed the line to Jesus through Joseph. That's Matthew's genealogy. Luke recorded the genealogy of Mary. He began with Jesus and followed the line back all the way up to Adam, starting from the unmentioned Mary. Let me show you this. First of all, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, this is the genealogy of Joseph, where it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, Matthew 1, 16, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, notice, he makes it clear that Mary is the one of whom was born Jesus, called the Christ. We all understand here, don't we, that Jesus was not the genetic descendant of Joseph. Joseph was his adoptive father, but since Mary gave birth and conceived by a miracle that God worked with her, uh, uh, apart from the normal process of conception altogether, but by a miracle that God created in her womb, so to speak, by miracle, God supplied the, the, the man's genetics. Mary carried her own part into it. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, this is the line to Jesus through Joseph. But Luke chapter 3, verse 23, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, notice this line, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. That, that's that's the, the big flashing light that Matthew, excuse me, Luke wants you to pick up on. And when you get into it, you find that what Luke actually records for us is the genealogy of Mary, and just mentions uh, Joseph as the adoptive father. Now, each one of these genealogies is the same as it records the line from Adam, or Abraham, all the way down to David. But at David, if you notice these two genealogies, they split. Now, we remember that David had 11 sons, Satan put his focus on the royal descendants of David through Solomon, and that was a reasonable strategy. But according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Joseph's line went through Solomon. It went through Jehoiakim, the cursed one. But friends, Jesus was not the blood descendant in Joseph's line. Only the legal descendants, the curse on Jehoiakim did not affect him. Jo- Joseph didn't uh, contribute any of the blood or any of the genetics for Jesus, but he did contribute his legal standing as a descendant of the royal line. Now, Mary's line, the bloodline of Jesus, did not go through Solomon, the son of David, but through a different son of David named Nathan. You'll find that in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. Mary was therefore not part of the blood curse that fell upon the line of Jehoiakim. So friends, from Genesis to Jesus, God has had the same strategy, the same plan, and he's working out his eternal plan of the ages to bring forth the deliverer, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the destroyer of Satan. All right, if I could presume just for a little more time, let me draw forth a few practical applications for this. Because I I wouldn't blame you for saying, well, David, that's all fascinating. Anything practical here in me? I'm glad you asked. Here's a few practical thoughts from this. Number one, we see Satan snared in his own trap. That principle is reflected many times in the scriptures. And and it gives you, it gives me a way to pray. When when I'm praying sort of in in a spiritual warfare mentality, one of the things I specifically pray is, Lord, let Satan fall into the same trap he set for so-and-so, the same trap he set for me. Let let him be caught in his own snare. Look, Look at these verses. I love these. Psalm 7, starting at verse 15. He made a pit and dug it out. And has fallen into the ditch which he made. And his trouble shall return upon his own head. And violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I say, Lord, let that be true of Satan. That's what you did for him in this whole beautiful lineage of the deliverer. Do it now, Lord, in my life. Or, Or Psalm 9, verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. Or one more, Psalm 35, verses 7 and 8. For without cause, they've hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. And that's just a beautiful mentality to have? Lord, Lord, I know that there are spiritual forces of wickedness sent against me, sent against people that you love and, and your work, Lord, I know that. But I know that you're greater than them all. God, I just ask that you and your sovereign power and wisdom that you would work and that you would cause Satan to fall into the same trap that he's setting for others. That's number one. Number two, we see absolute necessity for us to hold on to the truth of the virgin birth friends i I get a little shocked every christmas time to see some some guy well sometimes it's a woman blathering on and on how the virgin birth isn't all that important and you know it's Come on now, we live in the 21st century. We don't need to believe such things. It's just a symbol. It's just nonsense. This is something we need to hold on to. Friends, if the virgin birth is not true, then there is no qualified Messiah, no qualified deliverer to destroy Satan. Jesus had to have a human mother from the line of David. It would be through the seed of the woman that the deliverer came But it had to be not through the royal line passed through Solomon. But but Jesus also had to have a divine father and an adoptive father from that very royal line. God knew exactly what was necessary and he fit it all together. And we, we can't just let go of these things because, well, some people want to. And we need to hold on to truths such as the virgin birth. Number three, We see that Satan cannot defeat us, but but at least in appearance, he can only try to get us to defeat ourselves. Friends, don't forget that one. It's as if we're in a poker game with Satan, and he knows that we have a better hand. I know this illustration is kind of silly, so grant me some grace with it but you're in a poker game with Satan and he knows that you have the winning hand. You've got Jesus. You've got the winning hand. So all Satan can do is bluff. But listen, a good bluffer in a poker game, man, that guy can win. But if the bluff is believed as true, as if you think he does have a great hand, man, your your hand could lose. So don't fold. Don't ever lose confidence. And take seriously your responsibility to walk uprightly. Number four, we see that God's judgments never defeat God's plan and eternal purpose. Listen, who was it that announced the curse against Jehoiakim? God. God announced it. And I could just imagine in this sort of, you know, theoretical thing I'm thinking, this, this speculative thing, that, that Satan gets all excited when that curse gets pronounced w- without pausing to think, you know, it's God. that Maybe God knows what he's doing with that. We better believe he knows what he's doing. God's judgments never defeat his plan and eternal purposes. I, I wonder if just for a moment, in his own insanity, Satan thought for a moment that God defeated his own plan. Look, it could never be. Never. God's wisdom is great and unstoppable. Then, finally, here, number five Satan is smart. The serpent in the Garden of Eden was described as the most subtle of all creatures. Don't ever doubt Satan's intelligence, his cleverness. He's smart. God can never be outsmarted. Never in a thousand years. God will accomplish his purpose in your life just as much as he accomplished it in this lineage of the deliverer. Now, I know the lineage of the deliverer, man. That's, that's big scale, cosmic, biggest of all things. Every eye of all creation is on it. And praise the Lord for it. But I want you to know the same principle shakes down to your life God's purpose God's calling it will be fulfilled Satan can't outsmart God you don't need to live in fear of the devil in fear of his strategies yes maybe in wisdom be aware of them but keep your eyes focused on the Lord and his goodness and you'll be with the one that never has and never will lose. Praise God for his plan in bringing forth and preserving the line of the lineage of our deliverer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this. It, it makes us praise you, Lord. It, it makes us proclaim how your ways are past finding out, that no one has been your counselor, that you're above all, that you have a wisdom, you you have an ability, you, you have a design, you have a plan that is so far beyond not only every human intelligence, it's beyond every demonic intelligence. And so, Lord, this leads us to have such peace, such confidence in you and in your word and in your promise We rest in you, the one who can never be defeated. We praise you for this this evening, Lord. And at this wonderful Christmas season, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.